Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, I saw an interesting thing this last week. I was, was on toward evening. The sun had already gone down. There was a little bit of light left, not much. And I was headed through, cutting through Kern City. And as I got past the high school district office there, you know where that is, running, bounding across the street comes a kit fox. And I thought, these things are supposed to be endangered. I'm seeing them everywhere. I've seen him downtown in the sewers downtown. So, so, but I stopped to watch him. And I pulled my car up alongside the grass plot, the median. And he kept running, and he got to the grass plot and got part of the way across it. And so now my window's down, and I'm looking at him, and I'm pulled up alongside. I've stopped. And we're like eight, maybe ten feet apart. And he just stops. And he looks at me, and I look at him. And he doesn't move, and I don't move. And I'm thinking, what a beautiful creature. What a, what a well-adapted creature. What a, and you can see in his eyes, he's bright, he's smart, he's clever. And I'm guessing he's probably thinking the same thing about me. <laughs> and then I see a cat, a tomcat doesn't see the fox because he's coming from behind my vehicle and this cat comes across. And the cat doesn't see the fox and the fox doesn't see the cat until they're just a few feet apart. And then when they see each other, the fox puts his head down. He gets in attack mode. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I will always stop for a fight. It can be a girl fight, it can be a boy fight, it can be a dog fight. I'll stop and watch a fight. And so now we've got the battle of the ages. We've got the fox and the cat. And I've always admired the way cats fight, by the way. I, I wish I could fight like a cat. And so I'm going to see it. Here it is. And the cat gets down too and starts that low, rumbly purr that means business. And the tail's just flicking. And it's like, who's going to throw the first punch? And they growl at each other. They circle each other. And then they walk away. <laughs> Different directions. And I got cheated. And it, it, it made me think. When I was a kid, we would see guys that would do that. They would act like they were going to engage, but they would just talk and yell at each other. And we called that all talk, no do. And that's what I'd witnessed with the cat and the fox, all talk, no do. Well, we're going to talk today about something that Jesus says about what we say about him, our words about him. And I hope you don't get the impression mistaken impression that what we say can be disconnected from what we do and that what we say about Jesus becomes all talk. We've been talking about questions Jesus asked and you should answer. And we have find ourselves today, this is number nine 
in those questions Jesus asked. We've looked at questions he's asked like, um, what's in your hand? He's asked us the question, why do you notice the speck in somebody else's eye, but you miss the plank in your own eye? How can you do that? He's asked us questions like, who is my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? He's asked us questions like, do you really believe I can do this? And today it's another one of his questions. Somebody has counted them, not me, and said there are 295 questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. I will take them at their word. That's a lot of questions. But we've been discovering that when Jesus asks questions, he never asks questions because he needed information. He never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. And he never asks the question and uses it as an icebreaker just to get to know you. He doesn't use questions that way. He doesn't ask questions because he needs information that he can't find in any other way. But when Jesus is asking a question, it's more like a sharp scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. And he's peeling back the layers in our life with his question so that we can be healed. That's how Jesus used questions. And today his question, who do you say that I am, is an important one. And, and, and it's important because of what the answer to that question potentially can cause you to do. It will do more than cause you to say, I believe something. If you answer his question, it's got a lot of power in it. You know, Jesus is not interested in making a convert. You can read all of the word and you'll never find him one time inviting anybody to convert to anything. He never does that. He's not asking people simply to be believers. We talk about believers. Are you a believer or an unbeliever? He's not terribly interested in that either. Because the Bible says even demonic spirits believe. So belief is not where it's at either. In fact, your personal belief in Jesus will change nothing. Your personal private ideas about Jesus go nowhere. He's not interested in what you believe. Not really. But he's interested in something that if you will take hold of it, and do more than just believe it and more than just say it, that it will change everything. It, he's interested in something that if you say you believe it and then act on your belief, it can propel you to be what he's looking to create. And that's a disciple. Jesus is interested in learners, followers. The word means apprentice. When somebody decides they want to be a plumber, they don't sit in a classroom and absorb all the information. They attach themselves to a master plumber who says, use this wrench and turn it that direction. And Jesus is interested in apprentices, in disciples, in people that will follow him and do what he does and go where he goes. And when we take hold of that, when we become a disciple of Jesus, not just a believer, but an apprentice, well, that unleashes a power to change the whole world. That's what he had in mind. And tremendous things hang on the right answer to his question. So let's get to his question today. I want you to turn to Matthew 16. 
If you're a Bible reader, you know this passage, and maybe you know it well, and maybe you've memorized parts of it. If you grew up a Roman Catholic, you for sure know parts of this passage. Matthew 16 finds Jesus in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It is a city in a, in a non-Jewish part of the territory. And the important thing about this Caesarea Philippi, and the reason I've asked it to be put on the screen, the name Caesarea Philippi, is because this story is a lot like what the real estate people said. It's all about location, location, location. This is a story that would not have happened anywhere else, only Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's a city that has been rebuilt and renamed by a fellow named Philip, who was a, a minor player in the political scene that Imperial Rome had forced on that part of the world. He's what was called a tetrarch. And he had demolished the city that was there and had rebuilt it and renamed it. Conveniently enough, he had named it after himself, Philippi, Philip. But he had also named it Caesar, after Caesar, the great Augustus Caesar, in this case in Rome, the emperor of Rome. And so it's called Caesarea Philippi. And that's to distinguish it from another Caesarea that you see in your Bible that's by the sea. And that's the capital of Rome in that part of the world. And it's the place where Herod, the Jewish king, in an effort to toady up to the Romans, had moved his headquarters there as well. That's another Caesarea. This is Caesarea Philippi. He'd rebuilt it. It was formerly the city of Peneus, named after a pagan god who's the pagan god of the dead. Peneus. Now, Jesus enters Caesarea Philippi, Peneus. The city is built against a sheer cliff, a rock face. And in that rock face, they have carved niches, hundreds of them. And on those niches, they put shelves. And on those shelves, they stand the images of all kinds of pagan and demonic gods. And so they're worshipped there at Caesarea Philippi. But there is a, an opening at the base of that cliff that the city is built against. It's a large cave, a natural cave. And the shaft goes down into the bedrock. And the people there believed that that was the entrance to the land of the cursed dead. That through that cave opening, if you followed it long enough, it would eventually take you to the river Styx, which is the river of the lost dead. And they called that place the gate of hell. And it's at this very place, this place that's the land of the cursed dead, the entrance to the river of the dead. It's in this place that Jesus will say to his assembled disciples, his apprentices there, he will say, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He says that at the very gate of hell. What he's saying is that this thing that you and I are involved in is unstoppable. The church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped but it is unstoppable only as we go. The Great Commission says, go into all the world, make disciples, and teach them everything I've told you. And just like a car can't be steered 
when it's sitting still, God can do nothing that this book describes that he wants to do with you until you start going. But Jesus here at the gate of hell says that when you are going in my name, you are unstoppable. You cannot lose. The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus says that we're to go into all the world and make disciples, that word again, and teach them to observe all things that I've taught you. Make disciples. And this thing that we're a part of, that's called the church, the body of Christ, it cannot be stopped by any power on earth. And people have tried. Rome tried to stop the church and failed. Joseph Stalin tried and failed. Mao Zedong tried. That little goof in North Korea, he's trying. But they can't stop the church of Jesus Christ. ISIS, in our own day, in our own time, is trying. And they have knocked down buildings and monuments that have stood for Christ for years. They're gone now. They're dust now. And they have managed to do that. But they're not going to succeed either. In fact, do you know who the greatest evangelist in Syria, in Iraq, is right now? Because multiplied hundreds of Muslim people are coming to Christ. Do you know who the greatest evangelist in the Middle East right now is? It's ISIS. It's turning people to Christ. So we are part of something that is absolutely unstoppable as long as we are going, as long as we are in motion for Christ. Some of the most perversely creative minds in our society are trying to stop the church now, and they won't be able to succeed. Because your church, this church, the church, it's unstoppable. Jesus said so. As we go and as we make disciples, and we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks, as we stay in motion, the gates of hell can't prevail. Now, it's at that place that Jesus asks a poll question. For good or, or ill, I think more for ill, we find ourselves in another election season. This one is unusually strange. But there are all kind of polls, and we know what polls are about, the Gallup poll and the Zogby poll and the Harris poll. And Jesus is asking a poll question now here at the gates of hell, and his question is, who do people say that I am? He asks his followers. And they volunteer the answers that they've heard people say about Jesus. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament non-writing prophets. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Maybe you're Malachi. He was the last. Maybe you're back. Maybe you're Zechariah. They had a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. But every single one of those links show that people had a very high regard for Jesus. For Rabbi Jesus, they had very high opinions. They appreciated that his miracles were Elijah-like in their power. And they were a powerful confirmation of whose side Jesus is on, just like Elijah's were a powerful confirmation of whose side he was on. Now, they, the people reject the notion that comes from the Pharisees that Jesus is a liar and a trickster and a conjurer. He's a fraud or a demoniac. They reject that. 
No, he's like one of these Old Testament worthies. He's like mighty Elijah. Or he's like John the Baptist. John himself was a link from that Old Testament era. He's a throwback and he's powerful. Jesus being John is an idea some of them entertain. And that idea may have started with crooked King Herod, who had had John executed on a whim sometime before. And now wicked King Herod is afraid that John the Baptist in the person of Jesus has risen from the dead and he's going to revenge me for his killing. That idea that Jesus is John the Baptist may have come from the king. Or, or maybe he's Jeremiah, some people said. And, and Jesus and Jeremiah, there's some things about them that were very similar. Both are great sufferers, aren't they? Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and Jesus is called a man of sorrows. In the book of Hebrews, it says that he was heard, Jesus was heard, for his much loud crying when he would pray. He wept. He wept. And so maybe he's like a, a Jeremiah. Maybe he is Jeremiah, some thought. Whatever people thought of Jesus, according to this poll question, they had a high regard, but a high opinion of Jesus is never enough. Did you know that? You can have a sky-high opinion of Jesus, and it's still not enough. In this case, we think he's a stellar prophet. We think he's a good teacher. Did you realize those are some of the things you cannot say about Jesus Christ? That he's just a good teacher? We hear that. That's popular to say among people that are not believers that are not followers, they throw us a sop and say, oh, but he, he was a good teacher. That's the one thing you can't say. Somebody has developed what they call the trilemma. Jesus was one of three things, but he's not all three. He was either Lord, he's who he says he is, the eternal Son of God and God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, or he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. Now you think about those for a minute. Let's take the last and say Jesus was a liar. He told us things that he knew were not true about himself. And he said to us, trust me for your eternity. And he lied and knew he lied. He was a fraud. Well, that would make him the worst human being that's ever lived, wouldn't it? Hardly a good teacher. You can't say he's just a good teacher. What if you say, well, he said things that he really believed, but he was out of his gourd. He was out in the sun too long, and he believed things that weren't true, but he believed them, and he told us to trust him. And he was crazy. He was a lunatic. You look at the life of Jesus Christ, even when it's reported by people that don't care for him, his critics, his hostile critics, and there's no indication of anybody that's unbalanced there. He's always, always in control. He doesn't look like a lunatic. He doesn't sound like a liar. He's the Lord. That's the only choice we have left open to us, you see. But good teacher is the one thing he is not because good teachers aren't crazy and good teachers don't lie. No, he's the Lord. He's who he said he is. But they have high opinions of him. Their high opinions, though, are not quite enough. And these high opinions they have, Elijah, John, Jeremiah, 
Had they been enough, Jesus would have stopped his line of questioning there. But I know that the high opinions aren't enough because he didn't stop the questions. He has a follow-up. His first question is, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, and then he says, who do you say that I am? Because the opinion poll doesn't really matter. He wants to know what you think. And what you think is the thing that everything hangs on. Peter answers for all of the rest, and he says, standing there under the gates of hell, he stands there and he says that Christ, the anointed one, that's who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the King. And you're the Son of the living God. Now, in response to Peter's confession, that's what we call it here, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who we say you are. In response to that, Jesus comes back at him and says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. You'll be unstoppable, this church will be. Well, in response to Peter's confession, which was a response to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? He says, we say you're the Christ. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And what he's saying is on this rock of your confession. Everywhere that people say, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I am God in the flesh, that on that I will build something that will be unstoppable. Now, we have our Catholic friends that say, no, he built the church on Simon Peter. You're the rock, and on this rock I will build the church. Let me point out to you what he's saying exactly is this. And he uses the nickname that he'd given Simon, son of John. We call him Peter, but that was just a, a fun name that Jesus gave him. Maybe because he was always so full of bluster, he called him Peter, Petros. It means little stone. You think you're a big shot, Jesus says. You're just a little stone. And Jesus did that with his followers. He called one of his followers Thomas. He called him Didymus. It means the twin, but there was no twin. That leads us to believe that he was making fun of his weight problem. You're a twin. Jesus used all kinds of nicknames. James and John, what did he call them? Sons of thunder. You're full of sound and fury, but you signify nothing. And so it was a joke between them. You are Peter. You're the little rock. You're the little rock. But on this rock. And he uses the word for big stone. The big stone is his confession. The church is not built on Simon Peter. The church is built on the notion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's the King of glory. That's what he's built on. So it's not built on Simon Peter, which means you can tell your Catholic friends that Simon Peter is not the first pope. Just think about it. If, if he's the first pope, that would mean the first pope is Jewish, and I'm not sure the world's quite ready for that. But he says, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you are the king, you are the Messiah, and you are the son of the living God. And don't miss the connection that's being made there. You see, they were looking for king. They were looking for Messiah but they never dreamed that their Messiah would be God himself come to earth. 
That was the twist they weren't ready for. When the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. They believe he's Michael the archangel. Oh, they use all the same terminology. But when they come to your door and they begin to talk to you, all you need to do is ask a question. Is Jesus the Son of God? And they will say, oh, yes. All day long, he's the Son of God. But then you ask them, you ask them a follow-up question that was developed early on in the beginning of the church when people dealt with this very same thing. This is not a new idea that they're bringing to your doorstep. And the early Christians would ask that first question, is Jesus the Son of God? Yes, he is, but is he God the Son? And that's a far different thing. Son of the living God, that's who we believe he is. Son of the living God means he is like the Father God, that he is God. You, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's what God is like. He's not like the ideas that we generate in our heads about a Santa Claus or a mean father. No, he's like Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. That's God. You want to know what he's like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. That's what Jesus came to earth for. We don't know the date on the calendar, but sometime in the dim past, within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, God said, this thing that we have, Father, Son, and Spirit, is perfect. It's perfect harmony. It's perfect love. It's perfect. Somebody has described what Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy within themselves as a great dance. Everything is perfect, and everything is coordinated, and it's beautiful. It's perfect love. And God said within himself, the only way we can improve this is to share it. And that's why we're here. That's why he created all of this, so he could share what he had within himself. But we got away from him. We rejected him. We ran from him. We decided to make ourselves God instead of him. And for that reason, we came up with all kinds of ideas about him that are wrong. We got so many notions about him wrong that he finally said, the only way we can straighten this out is if I go down there myself. And that's why Jesus comes into the world. That's why the God-man. That's why he walks with us. That's why he becomes one of us. So we can communicate with him and he with us. And he shares the love of God with us. And Jesus' role is the role of the one pulling back the curtain saying, here's what we're like. And then he invites us into what they have. See, it's not just a trip to the altar. It's not just praying a sinner's prayer. God has done everything he can to make it a workable thing that you and I could enter into what they have, knowing what we are. He says, we want you in here, not out there. That's why Jesus came. That's what the Son of the living God is all about. Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us the love of the Father. St. Augustine said in one of his prayers to the Lord, he said, you, you have made us for yourself. And our souls are restless 
till they rest in you. Our home is in God, you see. Now, he asked the poll question. There are a lot of things that Jesus is not. He is not a great teacher only. He's not a prophet only. He's not a philosopher extraordinaire. He's not a healer only. He's not a religious leader. In fact, he's not that at all. And it's only sloppy thinking and poor reading habits that make us say things like that about him. Let me tell you what Jesus really is. According to his word that will never die, it says that he is the arm of the Lord. He is the word of God. He is the bread of life. He is the captain of our souls. He is the faithful witness. He is the first and the last. He's the good shepherd. He's the great high priest. He's Emmanuel, God with us, you see. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. You want me to go on? He's that, but he's more than that. He's the light of the world. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the man of sorrows. He, he, he's the mighty God. He's our redeemer. He's our resurrection. He's our life. He's my rock. He's my shepherd. But it goes beyond that. He's the bishop of our souls. That's what the word says about him. He's the son of David, but he's the son of the highest, and he's the son of righteousness. He's true light. He's true vine. He is the truth. He's the truth. He's not just a great religious leader. He's the truth that the world is aching for. He's the wisdom of God. He's the final word of God. So none of this great religious leader nonsense, that's too tame and that's too pale and too weak for him. Jesus Christ, he's your only savior. He, he, he's the only one who can fix the brokenness inside of you. And he's your soon coming king too. That's who he is. Do you say all those things about Jesus? I know you do. But saying without doing is nothing. What will that cause you to do is the issue. What can you do for Jesus? When I was a student, <clears throat> we were very anxious to preach anywhere, partly because we weren't very good. People wouldn't have us. And so we developed this idea and would go to churches all over southern Missouri and Arkansas. They, some of them were so small, you didn't call them churches, you called them outstations. But we developed the famous five-man sermon because my friends and I didn't know enough to preach a whole sermon. And fortunately, we knew that. And so we would take the introduction, another guy, the first, second, third point, I always did the conclusion. And we would go out and we would preach. And one day we did. We preached the famous five-man sermon. And at the end of the service, a man came up on the platform and gave a little testimony. And he worked himself into a frenzy. And then he was standing on the edge of the platform. And he looked around nervous. And he said, what can I do for Jesus? Just like that. 
And then he said, I'll hang from the chandelier. And he made a grab for it, and he hung from the light fixtures. Yeah. That's what he could do for Jesus. Well, you can blow all of your energies and all your good intentions on doing nothing for Jesus. You, you can waste those good intentions on things that won't matter. What can I give Jesus? What can I do? Not what can I say, but what can I give Jesus? And that is a tough one. Because when somebody does something gracious or kind, especially over a long haul, it's natural, isn't it, to want to give a gift of appreciation. Somebody does something nice for you, you want to show your appreciation, get a gift. Well, Jesus has rescued us, Paul says, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. Wow. He did that. Kimmy sings a song that says, he caught my falling soul. He did that. So what do I give Jesus? It's a tough question. About a year and a half ago, I was pulled up at an intersection. The traffic bogged down because they were resurfacing at Real Road and Stockdale. And so traffic got pulled over, and you just had to wait. And they were putting new coating on the street. And I watched as coming toward me, Wanting to cross Stockdale, there was a group, I, I guess they were from a group home, developmentally disabled, special needs adults. And they were walking with their caretaker, wanting to cross the street. And when they got to the intersection, there was one young lady, and she looked at the street that had been resurfaced, and she, she didn't want to step down onto that because it distressed her to think about stepping into that sticky, inky, wet, black glue. And she didn't want to do that. So they were in an impasse. How are we going to cross this street? That's when I saw one of the workmen in his orange vest and hard hat. He left his machine, and he went over, and he put her on his back, and he walked her across the street. And when he turned around, all of the rest of the guys were standing there clapping. So he went back over, and I don't think he meant to do this, but a guy jumped on his back. <laughs> so he carried that. He did that with everybody from the home. He carried them across, and then he carried their caretaker across. And after it was my turn, finally... They went on their way. It was my turn to go through the intersection. I stopped just for a second, and I, I pulled up alongside him, and I, and I flagged him down. And um, I told him, I said, you are a force of nature. You just did a very good thing, which I, I'm pretty sure he knew. There are things that need doing. that come across our path all day long. There are people that need to be encouraged in Christ in a whole bunch of different ways. 
and they come across our path all day long. Back to giving Jesus a gift. When you give a gift, I think you can approach it in two different ways. See what you think of my idea. You can, you can ask the question, what do they need? I want to give a gift. What do they need? But when you ask the question, wanting to give a gift, what do they need? That, I think, is how ladies end up with birthday presents like toasters. And men get socks and children get underwear. What do they need? But you can also ask, what would they like? What would they want? What would please them? So what can I do? What can I give to Jesus? Let me give you a couple suggestions. Love one another. Serve the poor. Trust him. Do good things. Fight evil. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Remember the Lord's Supper. Forgive just like you've been forgiven. Tell somebody about your life-changing experience. That's what you can do for him. Because it's not really what we say. It's what we do with what we say. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back. I want us to sing a chorus that talks about he is the treasure that I seek. He is my all in all. I want us to stand together. I want us to sing that chorus and begin to wrap this time up. Who do people say he is? That doesn't much matter, but who do you say that he is? Everything hangs on that. And everything hangs not only in what you say, but in what you do with what you say. If he is all that we say he is, what could I give Jesus? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.